Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look, and welcome to this Veterans Day special. I'm Rose Scott. Now, it is a tradition that on this day, programming focus on our nation's veterans. In the past, those segments have included those who served in Vietnam, our nation's unsheltered, and women veterans. Now, coming up today, we'll hear how a local organization is helping with rental assistance for for some area veterans, and also... For a long time, the guys who served tried to tell everybody our story, but nobody was listening. The Marine Corps didn't want you to know. It's just that simple. When you say Tuskegee Airmen, nine out of ten people know who you're talking about. We don't have that luxury market point, but that is the objective, to get their story told to the point that it's a common story. Do you know the story of the first black men to break the color barrier in the U.S. Marine Corps? It's the story of 20,000 black men known as the Montefort Point Marines. 97-year-old Ambassador Theodore R. Britton Jr. is living history, and he joins me later with more. And also we'll talk about why documentary is so important in telling this incredible story history. All this just ahead, but first this, some offices are closed today in honor of Veterans Day, but if you were planning to attend an event, you might want to check first to see if it's been canceled because of the weather. Rain is predicted all day in most of Georgia. Marietta's planned parade has been canceled, and the historic Oakland Foundation has canceled its Veterans Day tour of Oakland Cemetery, but plans to reschedule. Now, along with the rain, as of air time of this original broadcast, there's a wind advisory in effect until 7 p.m. this evening. And according to the National Weather Service out in Peachtree City, wind gusts up to 35 miles per hour could occur. Now, this also includes area not just here in central and east central, north central, northeast, wherever you, Georgia, wherever you are, you could deal with this. So just be patient. And now there are some Veteran Days events that are scheduled to take place throughout the weekend. So check to make sure. In other news, Georgia activists on both sides of the abortion issue are mobilizing ahead of the December 6th runoff between Democratic incumbent Senator Raphael Warnock and Republican challenger Herschel Walker. As we hear from Jess Mador, both campaigns have a strategy on track to play a big role in determining which party controls the Senate. Senator Raphael Warnock has called himself a, quote, proud pro-choice pastor. He's endorsed by the national group NARAL Pro-Choice America, and he's co-sponsored legislation that would protect abortion and abortion providers. This week, the pro-abortion access Amplified Georgia Collaborative put out a statement reminding voters it's a critical time for protecting women's reproductive freedoms. And on the GOP side, a national anti-abortion group called Susan B. Anthony Pro-Life America is promising to spend at least a million dollars to support Herschel Walker. The group also previously endorsed Walker, whose opposition to abortion is central to his campaign. This is despite allegations from two women that he'd pressured them to have abortions he then paid for in the past. Jess Mador, WABE News. And speaking of campaigns, Republicans are ready to use Governor Brian Kemp's, quote, get out the vote machine. A story appearing in the news outlet Politico reports that the Mitch McConnell-aligned super PAC called the Senate Leadership Fund will use pretty much anything aligned with Kemp's campaign ahead of the, the December 6th vote. Now, in this political story, it cites that an agreement between Kemp and the PAC includes, quote, that Kemp will transfer his door-knocking, data analytics, phone banking, and micro-targeting program to the PAC. More than 50 new lawmakers are joining the state legislature after Tuesday's elections. Raul Bali reports that includes more Asian-American represent- representatives. 
The number of Asian American state lawmakers in the General Assembly is going up from six to nine. Lawrenceville Democratic State Representative Sam Park has served since 2017. Proud to see an increase in Asian American representation uh, here in the state of Georgia. Our representation is reflecting our changing demographics, um, which uh, hopefully is, is a good sign that our democracy is responsive. According to a report by the Asian American Advocacy Fund, Georgia's Asian American population has grown 52 percent since 2010 to nearly half a million. While Park will represent a Gwinnett County district that's 16 percent Asian, he says he campaigned on issues that affect all communities. From access to education, to health care, to affordable housing, all issues that are top of mind that Asian Americans will want to see addressed along with uh, the broader electorate. Park says he sees a strong desire to make Georgia welcoming to immigrants and refugees. Seven of Georgia's incoming nine Asian American state lawmakers are Democrats. The remaining two are Republicans. Raul Bally, WABE News. And this just into WABE, the Atlanta Press Club, the Loudermilk Young Debate Series, will host a runoff debate for that U.S. Senate seat. The debate will air live on our friends over at Georgia Public Broadcasting at 7 p.m. on Monday, November 21st. So stay tuned for that. MARTA is asking state regulators to deny Georgia Power's request to raise its rates. Georgia Power has proposed raising rates across the board for residents and businesses. Kevin Hurley is the deputy chief financial officer for MARTA. At a utility hearing yesterday, he said if MARTA's tariff goes up, the transit agency might have to raise fares. MARTA's ability to continue offering reliable, efficient, accessible, and affordable public rail service is critical to attracting and maintaining business and growing our communities. Hurley went on to say MARTA doesn't have a fair increase in its current budget, but the Georgia Public Service Commission will decide next month on whether to approve Georgia Power's rate request. And finally... There's a celebration of life today in downtown Atlanta at State Farm Arena to remember slain Migos rapper Takeoff, whose name is Kirshnif Kahari Ball, was shot and killed last week outside a Houston bowling alley. He was 28 years old. No arrests have been made. Free tickets were made available for the event, but quickly reached capacity, and media were not allowed inside for the ceremony. Artists Alicia Keys and Justin Bieber reportedly will give a tribute You're listening to Closer Look, and we're back in a moment. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. It's estimated there are currently 18.2 million veterans throughout the nation's armed forces here in our country. And we say estimated because there are so many that are unaccounted for who may be unsheltered. Must Ministries, one of Georgia's largest and oldest nonprofits, well, they have projects with a focus on homelessness and poverty. And today, alongside a corporate sponsor, they're going to offer some assistance to some veterans. We're joining the program now. He's been on before. Must Ministries President and CEO, Dr. Ike Reinhardt. Welcome back. Thank you, Rose. I'm so delighted to be with you on Veterans Day today. Absolutely. Before we we begin with what you all did today, let's get a little background on you all have a program called the Supportive Housing Program. We do. And of course, what Must is probably best known for is we have a brand new 136 bed homeless shelter. Mm -hmm. And um, we just opened that up uh, this past May. And it also has an additional 36 beds 
that are for respite care, like with the temperature dropping below mm -hmm. 35 degrees over this weekend, uh, we open up that part of the shelter as a warming shelter to be able to take care of men and women during inclement weather. So altogether, we have 172 beds, and then we have permanent supportive housing on top of that. And uh, that uh, takes care of several hundred people. And altogether, on any night, uh, people putting their heads on a pillow, there's about 1,500 people that we're helping. You know, I, I, this may not be lost on you, but we were trying to find some more accurate data, but we were having a little difficulty because, as you know, numbers can vary. But we were able to, to discover this, that it is estimated between 11 percent and maybe 13 percent of all the homeless adult population, that that 11 to 13 percent, that that might include veterans. What do you make of that? It, I would absolutely agree with that. I would say that even here at Must. We would probably say there's closer to 20% of what we call unsheltered homeless people uh, that fall into that category. And of course, our goal is to be able to get everyone sheltered. And uh, we're certainly honored when we're able to do that for veterans because they sacrifice so much for us that we feel like it's just imperative that we help to take care of them. Uh, the good news is, Rose, that uh, with some of the latest stats that have just come out through HUD mm -hmm. and others, is that when it comes to homeless veterans since uh, 2010, uh, that number has decreased by about 55.3%. I saw that, yeah. And it, yeah, and between 20 to 22, it decreased 11%. Mm -hmm. I think the reason for that is because so much of corporate America saw that need, wanted to respond, and that's what we were doing at Must earlier this morning uh, with our partners at the Home Depot. Well, let's talk about that for our listeners. You all, along with Home Depot, you had, it was part of the Home Depot Foundation's Operation Surprise. This is actually a nationwide event, but yes. tell our listeners what happened today. Well, it was fun. You know, we're right here in the holiday season. And, uh, you know, Rose, I always say I love the Christmas season because it illustrates three great stages of life. Mm -hmm. One, you believe in Santa Claus. Then second, <laughs> you don't believe in Santa Claus. And then number three, you find out, oh, dear Lord, I am Santa Claus. And so today, because of Home Depot, we were able to be Santa Claus for those veterans. And what they've done through the Home Depot Foundation, Operation Surprise. Mm -hmm. uh, they are surprising 1,000 veterans by paying for their rent during the month of December. Mm -hmm. And the reason it's important, like in our permanent supportive uh, housing program, must pay 70% of the veterans' rent, and it comes to us through a federal HUD grant, mm -hmm. and the veterans are responsible for the remaining 30%. Mm -hmm. That gives them a greater sense of responsibility, and it also helps provide dignity and respect for them. And so the Operation Surprise is going to pay for the veterans portion mm -hmm. uh, for the entire month of December. And again, over a 1,000 veterans across the country are having uh, that kind of help with their rental and mortgage payments during December. And 10 of those mm -hmm. are bus clients. And let me ask you this, because maybe someone listening may not, or they may get it or they may not, but even someone getting assistance for a month, can you speak to how important that could be, particularly when you talk about the plight? Obviously, we're talking about veterans, but for so many people, just having that one month of, of support, what that means. It gives the ability to be able to breathe financially. And if you could have seen the looks on the faces, and these are all grown adults, obviously, that are in that room, but the look of surprise, the, the joy, uh, the fact that many of them still have family members that they're in contact with, and that'll give them an opportunity to maybe be able to buy a gift or to do some things that normally they wouldn't have been able to do. And so uh, there was a lot of joy uh, in that room. Altogether, we have 12 single veterans, and then we have three 
families mm -hmm. that we uh, help to assist at MUS that are military families. So having that partnership with Home Depot, uh, they gave us a very significant gift when we were building the new homeless shelter that's called Hope House. Mm -hmm. And so um, I just can't say, sing their praises enough about their commitment to veterans and working alongside a lot of nonprofits like Must Ministries. You know, Ike, I've had conversations with the former secretary who was then at Veteran, Veteran Affairs, and, and we've had this conversation because we know that there are, are resources, but there is a lot of backlog. We know that the Veterans Affairs the administration has had to revamp. There, we know the issues with veterans trying to get not just help in terms of, of the physical conditions, but for mental health resources. And so for organizations like yours and, and other complementary organizations, you all are sometimes having to fill the gap as they wait for these services from the VA. Uh, we do. And, and here's the benefit of being a part of MUST and what MUST brings to the table. Uh, we have a church that helps us to be able to gather the identification for all of these uh, people who find themselves homeless. And when you're without a home, uh, you can lose your paperwork, you can lose your driver's license, you can lose your social security card. And so we have this one church that that's kind of their mission is to help provide for all of our clients identification. Then we assign a staff member, for instance, to a veteran, and our staff member will go back and forth with them uh, to work on their veteran benefits that are there. Yeah. And so many times um, people get frustrated because, you know, the Veterans Administration is a heavily uh, staffed with volunteers. So you might get a different volunteer the next time you go back. Mm -hmm. But with MUST, we can provide someone that provides consistently that's going there with the veterans and helping cut down on that frustration. And so many of them, you know, deal with PTSD and other mental health issues mm -hmm. that come with uh, being unsheltered. And so we're there to help try to stabilize and to move them into a program. Uh, it's all a part of the housing first movement mm -hmm. with HUD. And I think that's also um, something, you know, that came out of the Biden-Harris White House that's been very, very beneficial uh, to veterans is the housing first mm -hmm. concept of if we can get them into housing, then we can help get fixed the other things in their life, be it a job, be it clothing, medical care, all of those different kinds of things that partner together and um, help us to be able to get people to a much better place in life. So you're saying also for so many, just navigating or trying to navigate through the system is a challenge. That is the first, for many, that is what they need first. And then you can work on all the other wraparound services they may need. Exactly. And uh, Rose, the national average for someone, and these are all HUD terminologies, mm -hmm. um, we're called a, an emergency walk-up shelter. That's a specific designation that we take anyone that walks up. And of course, we do a background on them and all those kinds of things uh, to because we have women and children in our shelter as mm -hmm. well. So we always want to provide safety first. You know, that's the, the mantra for us. But an emergency walk-up shelter, for someone to leave that shelter and move to a more permanent situation uh, than what they've been in, the national average is only 40% of people leaving the shelter mm -hmm. will move to a more stable housing environment. At must, our percentage is somewhere around 81 or 82%. And the reason is the wraparound services mm -hmm. because we're helping get the clothing when they want to go do a job sure. interview. We're, we're helping do all of that connection. We helped nearly 500 people this past year and um, those 500 people, the jobs resulted in a $12.9 million economic impact and the dignity and respect of being able to get a job. 250 of those jobs that were gained were people who were living in the shelter. And the other jobs were people outside of the shelter. And so 
helping them to be able to get a job, helping them with mental health care, which is something that we're just very committed to is, doing more of in the future. With As it relates to veterans, Ike, is that the primary need when, when you encounter folks, the veterans who come in that for obviously, if they're, if they're unsheltered, you want to get them sheltered. But also, the next need is some type of mental health resource. It really is uh, because, you know, living uh, alone, living isolated, uh, sometimes, you know, it, it just causes um, it, it causes a lot of social anxiety. And we know that it takes about seven or eight touches from our personnel to begin to build a level of trust. Mm-hmm. And, you know, your level of trust is going to determine your speed of change. And that's true in a person's, you know, personal situation. The higher the level of trust they have with us, the more they're open to some of the solutions that we bring the ta- to the table mm-hmm. to help them gain that more stable environment. And Ike, as we wrap up, what is your message on this Veterans Day as it relates to not only just what you all are trying to do in helping our nation's veterans, but also with even just for a month paying a rent and mortgage for these for our veterans, for some of our veterans that here in the area? What is your message? Uh, my message to those veterans is that we're here for them. And thank God we have amazing partners like the Home Depot uh, that's helping these uh, thousand veterans across the country. And the need is still great. Mm-hmm. And um, when people invest in this area uh, to help us help those who've served our country, I think it just adds a level of dignity. And I think it adds a, a great measure of we're thankful for your investment uh, in our country. And during this Thanksgiving season, there can be no better time. Ike, you have veterans in your family, I take it? I do. My father served in the United States Army in the Philippines during World War II and was there till the the end of the war. And my dad at that stage in his life had three children, Rose. Mm. And I can't imagine leaving rural Appalachian, North Carolina in his 30s uh, to go to a place that he had probably barely even read about before sure. and to go there and serve his country. And he was in the army. So that's why I'm named Dwight Ike. Yeah, I'm after, named after, after Eisenhower. <laughs> but my dad's favorite president was Franklin Delano Roosevelt. You okay. know? So All right. <laughs> my family covered both the Democrat and Republican sides. All and right. There was one thing about my family, Rose. When that person was elected to that office, we were taught to respect that office. And I wish there were more of that today. All right. President and CEO of Must Ministries, Dr. Ike Reinhardt, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for what you all were doing today to help some of our veterans here in the in the area. Well, thank you, Rose. It's always great to be on with a legend. <laughs> thank you. First composed by Lionel Hampton and Benny Goodman in 1939. Some of y'all out there might remember that. But this version was actually recorded May 26, 1942. It is Lionel Hampton's Flying Home, featuring a very young, young tenor saxophonist by the name of Illinois Jacquet. And if you know your jazz, I don't need to say any more. The Closer Look continues from WABE here in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. I'm just getting started with today's history lesson, so I need for y'all to sit still and just pay attention. You talk about a dryway moment, I can tell you right now, you're going to have one. 1942 would also mark when the United States Marine Corps would begin recruiting black Americans. But there's a little history here. A year earlier, in June of 1941, then-President Franklin Roosevelt came under pressure, not only from his wife Eleanor, but civil rights leader and labor activist A. Philip Randolph. Why? Well, Randolph, a giant for civil rights way before the 1960s. In fact, Randolph told Roosevelt, if you don't, I'm paraphrasing, if you don't get this together, there will be a march on Washington. Now, keep in mind, this is in the 1940s. What he wanted, he wanted them to know, look, you have to allow blacks access within the nation's defense industries. They want complete equality, social, economic and political. 
And no force under the sun can stem and block and stop this civil rights revolution. So, President Roosevelt enacted Executive Order 8802, allowing black Americans to work in the federal government. It would ban discriminatory employment practices and policies by federal agencies, allowing all unions and companies engaged to work in war, to work in war-related areas. Now, the order also established the Fair Employment Practice Commission as a means to enforce the new policy. And so then history begins to unfold, and that leads to the story of the Montfort Point Marines, the first black recruits to receive basic training at the segregated then Montefort Point base near Camp Lejeune in North Carolina. And today, on this day, many of the ABC-owned television stations, they're going to air a one-hour news special chronicling the legacy of the first group of black U.S. Marines who fought during World War II. So it is the story of 20,000 black men known as the Montefort Point Marines. And so I am honored to have with us today Ambassador Theodore R. Britton, retired Montefort Point Marine at 97 years young. You look like you're about 47, <laughs> and I don't believe that you're 97. Also joining me is retired Sergeant Major Johnny Higdon, president of the Atlanta Chapter 5 National Montefort Point Marine Association. Thank you both for being here, and thank you for your service to our nation. Thank you. Thank you, Rose. And thank you for having us. Uh, Ambassador Britton, you have a very big gold congressional medal that you're wearing. How often when you look at that and you think about, you go back to when you first enlisted, what goes through your mind? It was interesting. I um, had thought about going in the air for air wing of the Army as well as um, I had a choice of the Navy. But I said, no, I don't want either. I want the Marine Corps. Mm -hmm. And they said, it's filled. And I said, well, unfill it and make room for me. <laughs> but, Rose, I have to call something to your attention. Mm -hmm. Mary McLeod Bethune was, was a also very close friend of Mrs. Roosevelt. That is true. And did a lot to get things going. That so is true. I just I can't can't forget her. We can't, and you're yeah, absolutely yeah, right too. Yeah. Let's go back for a moment because, as my research leads me to, your story falls under this: a gentleman and a scholar. Oh, <laughs> what's that all about? Okay, when I went to high school in New York, by the way, my first ten years were spent in South Carolina, where I was born. Mm -hmm. But um, the teachers up there. Well, let me see. First, I went to. I was, we went to Harlem, mm -hmm. and although I was in the seventh grade, I was 10 years old, they put me back for, to fourth grade on the basis that children from the South were not as smart as those from up North. Really? But a lucky thing happened. My father lost his job, and we had to move downtown in the white section, and back up I went. <laughs> okay, wow. When I reached high school, from day one, this teacher... Dr. L. Walter Stevens said, Britton, I want you to be a gentleman and a scholar. And every day he reminded me of that. So that's how I got started with that. It didn't occur a lot until I went to Paris Island this year. And for some reason, they decided to do a video yeah. on that subject. So it's circulating now on YouTube. The Marine Corps back then. Yes. When, you, when it was known that they just weren't recruiting black men, it, what was the conversations? Did you hear people saying, well, this is going to change. We're going to have to do something. No. What, what were people talking about? No, we were. Well, of course, everybody who went in was a boot. You were at the bottom. Mm -hmm. And so you, 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 were, you were just concerned with staying alive because you had to run everywhere you went. You had to say, sir, to everybody. You had to stand up straight. Mm -hmm. You had to, um, you, you had to, well, it was tough. Mm -hmm. It was tough because you you were looked on as the bottom. I remember one day walking along. No, I was running because you had to run everywhere you went. Mm -hmm. And I spotted an old friend from high school. And so I was so happy to see him. And I yelled, George, George, George. And he stiffed me up. He said, <laughs> Boot, come to attention. Yeah. Because you were you at the bottom. How, don't you know how to address an officer? Absolutely. And he gave me down the country. That's why I'd never speak to that SOB. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask you this, Mr. Brent, why did you want to join the armed forces when there was this when there was segregation? 
Why would you want to join? Well, because everybody was going right. in. Yeah. But in addition, I've often said that although my father didn't have much of an education, he had a pioneer spirit. Mm-hmm. When you leave the South where you know everything and you're familiar with everything and you go up North, you don't know what you're going to run into. Mm-hmm. He took a chance. He brought the family, my wife, my uh, mother and two two sisters up. And so that's how we got started. Well, I just assumed that I had that pioneer spirit, and since the Marine Corps was new, Mm -hmm. that's what I would take. But I can say that it was a glorious experience, and it completely changed me as it did Mm the 19,468 others Mm -hmm. who served with me. What was the... And I've heard, and I know I'm going to get emails on this, because I've heard that basic training for Marines is none other like any of the other... And I'm going to get some emails, mm-hmm. but going back to uh, basic training. And it's the train, greatest fraternity in the world, too. Yeah, I've heard that. Yes. You remember the first day? We remember that first day when you were you arrived on the base? Yes. What was that like? <laughs> this is funny. We were ordered out at night at midnight with our buckets and shovels, and everybody showed up except one person. His name was Burston. And so when he showed up, he didn't have his bucket, and the D.I. demanded to know why he didn't. And he said, sir, my bucket has coal in it. Mm. He said, go in, put that coal out, and bring your darn bucket back out. And he didn't say, darn. I know. Yeah. But he came back out, and we were dismissed except him. And so at 2 a.m., I was asleep, and I could still hear him out there yelling, sir, my bucket has coal in it. He was made to stand on that bucket all night shouting, sir, my bucket has coal in it. So that was how I got introduced to the Marine Corps. But I had made a decision. Mm -hmm. No matter what happened, I would be the last person to go down. I was not the biggest person in Mm -hmm. the outfit, but I was determined to be the last person and I always knew that even the drill instructor had to go in to use the bathroom mm-hmm. or something. So, Was your family, I know they were proud, but were they also concerned, worried? No. Yeah. no. They didn't know what was going on. Yeah. No, I was always so far but, ahead of my family that um, I guess I, I, I had to kind of relate to them because my sisters dropped out of high school in the first term. I kept going. Mm-hmm. No one went to college. I kept going mm-hmm. and so forth. When Just so many things were coming up, but my family was proud of me, but mm-hmm. they didn't really know what I was doing. When I told them I was majoring in banking and finance, they wanted to know why. After all, they know black yeah. folks aren't being, they, you can't get a job in banking. And that's what basically many people were concerned with, whether you could get a steady job. Mm-hmm. First time you go overseas, where'd you go? To Guadalcanal by way of Espirito Santo. It took 33 days, and um, it was interesting because the first day I met a young man, a brother on the ship, who told me some of the secrets of avoiding avoiding seasickness. Mm -hmm. Because in 33 days, you can run into an awful lot of things. I can imagine. He told me to take the top bunk. Mm-hmm. He told me to eat only solid food and so forth. And uh, so it took 33 days, but we finally reached Guadalcanal. Yeah. And I was put to room with four or three, no, four medical corpsmen who got me introduced to medicine. Was it integrated or was it segregated? Oh, segregated. Yeah. Oh, well, I always have a laugh about it. Our officers were white, mm-hmm. but they were still part of us. Mm-hmm. And secondly... When you get 128 black guys with rifles and bullets, Here you go. and you get four white guys with... Uh, <laughs> I knew you were going to uh, say that. You can get some awfully nice officers. Well, and you all are on the same side, too. I, that's right, that's I, right. I, I want to bring in Sergeant Major Johnny Higdon. My hero. All right, President of Atlanta Chapter 5, National Montefiore Point Marine Association. Why don't more people know about these group of black soldiers? Well, uh... In, in my opinion, I, it's, it's clear that they are the uh, greatest story never told. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were the story that really wasn't meant to be. Um, of course, when when the Marine Corps did open their doors uh, in 42 to to the black recruits, mm-hmm. no one thought they would make it. 
Yeah. But clearly, um, the, as I get to hang out with the rock star every day, the ambassador here, uh, they did. They persevered. Uh, they made it their their point uh, to, to persevere and, and, and defy the odds. Uh, the old saying we say is they uh, set out to make a, uh, make a difference and end up making history. Uh, so uh, the story, the story, it, Marine Corps is the smallest branch of service there is in mm-hmm. the first place. I don't think a lot of people know that. Yeah. And then to talk about a small group in the Marine Corps really, you know, really um, alludes to why nobody knows much much about the story. And of course, history doesn't doesn't talk about it as well. Do we know how many? Surviving Marines are, are are with us now. Obviously, we have. No, amb- we don't know. No. Do you still have some friends you keep in touch with, some fellow soldiers? Yes, yes, there are a few, very few. Uh, Rose, one thing we didn't have any stars in the Marine Corps. Mm-hmm. For example, there was a standing order that no black person could ever be in charge of a white person. Mm-hmm. Starting off, the commandant said, "I don't want them." Mm-hmm. Given the choice of 250,000 blacks or 5,000 whites, I'll take the 5,000 whites. So, uh, so we we were sort of and and because everybody else was trained at Paris Island mm-hmm. or at Camp Pendleton, they had never heard of us. Mm-hmm. And so when when white Marines saw us on the street in the states, they thought we were phonies. Only the guys who were overseas who saw us bringing ammunition and food to them and sometimes taking them off the front when they were wounded or taking them back in body bags when they were killed. Uh, these are the only people who knew that we existed. We were well respected overseas, but not on shore. And so once we finished, we just went back to our work and that was it. What does that Sorry. say? No, no, go ahead. Yeah. Now I'm going to get you in, in a minute, uh, Sergeant. But what does it say? And I've, we've all heard this, yes. that the respect that our black soldiers received overseas yeah. was n- was obviously a thousand percent more than here in the United States. And we know why, because of racism. And, uh, go ahead. Well, in Hawaii, the Hawaiians had been prejudiced against us. When we first arrived in Hawaii, in Maui, the Hawaiians, who were darker than we were, mm-hmm. would walk across the street until we began to attend their churches, to participate in athletics with them, to mm-hmm. sing in some of their choirs and what have you. It changed everything. And that was but, just by yeah. being together, living together. Yes. Sergeant, it is said that the largest number of black Marines, and Ambassador Britt, you may know this, that served in combat during World War II, took part in siege of Okinawa is that true and, and obviously it is true yeah, right, yeah. but folks don't know that well, so we know of the Tuskegee Airmen exactly. we know that and, and we should honor and we always will honor them but these Marines so it, it's, it's important uh, to use of course thank you for using your platform to help us get the story out but I'll even use my story uh, serving in the Marine Corps for 30 years I didn't find out about okay, the stop. Marine Corps. Okay, stop. Just stop. Uh-oh. <laughs> you served in the Marine for 30 years. 30 years, I did. You're 97. You look like you're 67. You look like you're 12. <laughs> what, the, the Marines, what y'all doing? Exactly. And I mean that with great respect. You know that. But, but I didn't find out about the Moffa Point Marines mm-hmm. until probably 19, 20 years in. Really? You know, we, we amplified our heroes in the Marine Corps, the Chesty Pulls, the Dan Dalys. And, and and some people did, but I didn't, and I and and I feel some kind of way about that. How'd you find out about them? I just I happened to be stationed on Camp Moffat Point, on Moffat Point Camp. I was stationed on now Camp Johnson. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I was. Uh, it was the, renamed Camp Johnson, right? And, and named after one of our top sure n- non commissioned officers. We called him Hashmark. <laughs> he was the only one. He had served in the army and in the, the navy. Yes. So he had the marks of tenure. Wow. So he had these marks, and those are called hash marks in the Marine Corps. Wow. That's why he was he was given that nickname. Now, keep in mind that normally, when you get about these four, five, and six stripes up on your on your sleeve, that means you've been in, like the sergeant major here, maybe fifteen, twenty, thirty mm-hmm. years. Our men were walking around with six stripes and no hash marks. As a matter of fact, Sergeant Major Huger down in, uh, who, who worked under under Mary McLeod Bethune, 
he was detained, arrested for impersonating a staff NCO. So they didn't even think that this man, this black man, could have achieved yes, this recognition? Yes, un- until he demanded that the office of the day look at his papers. Now, he could have picked up the telephone and called Mrs. Roosevelt, mm, wow. Sergeant, Sergeant Major. That was... It was open in those days, and he used to chauffeur Mrs. Roosevelt as well as to serve her when she came to visit Mm -hmm. Bethune-Cookman College. But anyway, I said, Sergeant Major, I would have pulled you in too, and he said, what do you mean? Are you prejudiced? (laughs) I said, no, no, no. Keep in mind, you've got six stripes that normally take you about 20 to 25 years to get, and you don't have any hash marks at all. Obviously, you had me. <laughs> he said, I'm glad, I'm glad you were not in not one right. case you show up patrol. But he deserved all of those. Yes. But I, I get back to it. We, we think of Okinawa and Iwo Jima because mm-hmm. those are the first time that black folks got some real publicity in mm-hmm. terms of battle. Mm-hmm. But when we took over Guam, there was still something like 30,000 Japanese on the island. Yeah. It had been declared. So Sergeant Major um, Johnson took out something like like 80, 18 or 19 um, patrols at night mm. to capture the Japanese. They were coming into the camp and killing people at night trying to steal food. But our people, in fact, I have a letter of commendation from the commanding general to one of my friends who served on Guam at that time. What year was this? Probably in, ni- in 1940, it would have been 1944, 1945. Yeah. Wow. yeah. They were going up the line, but yeah. uh, there was still a lot of action going on down the line. Sergeant, you were, you were talking about how you discovered these men who had come decades before you that you didn't know about. So I was stationed on Camp Johnson, and I was the first sergeant at, at personal administration school. And the sergeant major was off deck, so I was the acting sergeant major of the of the installation. And there was a ceremony being conducted, and I had to help set the ceremony up. The ceremony just happened to be Moffa Point Marine Day. The commandant of the Marine Corps and the sergeant major of the Marine Corps was coming down to to – uh, established the first ever um, Moffa Point Marine Day, and I was mm-hmm. in charge of helping putting that ceremony together. And that's when it all hit me on how much history that I was really a part of, and I had no idea. So I, I made it my mission from then on uh, that this was this was going to be me. I, I was going to scream it to the top of my lungs everywhere I go because we need to know this story. Now we we see a, we're hearing a little bit more. But the, and I think the Marine Corps, and one could argue the Marine Corps could do a lot more yes. in order to Agreed. to bring recognition and honor these these men. What are you all doing here in terms of with your association and how are you all trying to help be a part of that and tell this story? And, and so we're trying different strategies to capture the veterans here in the area because we know there's so many veterans here in the greater Atlanta area. We're trying to reach them through our, our social media platforms, through our website, just to let them know we're here. Mm-hmm. So we try to get out and do tons of community events uh, to draw draw the interest in because we know they're here. We know they know a little bit about us. They just didn't know about a, a lot about the organization. Uh, and So that's our goal is to tell their story on as many platforms as possible like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that gets the interest coming, uh, and, and we, we, we try to bring them in on board after that. And, of course, the documentary that is out will yes, help shed light a, on that. That's a gold mine. Um, yes, sir. And we received in August our first ever four-star general yes. mm-hmm. in the Marine Corps. Yeah. It, most people don't know it. The Marine Corps is only entitled to two four-star generals. The Army has 44, (laughs) but General Michael Langley became the first four-star general. He's head of the Africa Command based Mm -hmm. in Germany, and he's on the payroll of the Defense Department. Mm -hmm. But, again, he walks around with four stars on his shoulder as a Marine. That's the first time it's happened. I I think that was just a few months ago. Yes. August, yes. I met him down at at the dedication of the— Frank Peterson battleship, the destroyer. Yeah. But this this is this is major. This yeah. is major. And I want to 
I've made it my point to say some nice things about the commandant, current commandant. We've had some good commandants. Jim, Jim Amos was a very good friend and a good, solid supporter. He was the one who was there when you came yes. down. I was there with yes. him. Yes. But in this case, um, uh, General Berger has out banned all displays of any of this scurrilous type of literature or signs on the basis, um, the Confederate signs and mm-hmm. Nazi signs and all that kind of business on. He's eliminated that. He's a good person, and I, I really admire him. I want to go back to when you were serving and conversations you had with white soldiers yes. about race. Mm-hmm. I imagine you did have some, sir, or, or, or did you? I shouldn't assume, but I'm, I'm just curious. What, what were those conversations like? Because you all are on the, as we say, on the same side. But there's this segregation. There's segregation within a, a, a military. And, it, and listen, we know this happened. Yeah. It's, it, it wasn't unique. We know it happened. Yeah. But I'm just curious because you were there. The conversations you had with your white counterparts about all this. Not during World War II. <laughs> really? We didn't have any interaction at all with enlisted men who were white. The only ones we saw was our white officers. The only ones, and we were all black. So they had, so. Wait, there was no interaction. Now, when I came out and began working, I ran into fellows who had served in the Marine Corps, and they not only berated me, but belittled me for doing nothing, for just being, wearing the uniform. Um, I couldn't tell them what we had been doing. I didn't know. Do you, what did you say? Did you, what, what was your response to them if you had one? I despise them mm-hmm. whenever they mention, in this case, this particular person mentioned it. Others treated me nicely. I, I keep saying that Mr. Stevens and his gentleman and a scholar thing always conditioned me so that people did not mess with me. For some reason, I was always treated special, mm-hmm. both by my drill instructors and by my officers. So I never had that problem. But I did begin to oppose the Marine Corps on some things when I found out what was going on, and I paid for it later on when they turned me down for a commission. Yeah, yeah. What did you oppose, sir? Well, they wanted to set up an all-black trucking company in Harlem. And I said, no, the boys want to join the rifle companies, the the artillery companies, and all that business. And this is what we want. We don't want a trucking company, Mm -hmm. especially just all-black. Not that we're against all-black things, but in this case, we want to be part of the real Marine Corps. And they said, no, this is what we're going to do. So... I got in touch with my congressman. I was a scoutmaster, Adam Clayton Powell, who got mm-hmm. in touch with the, with the Secretary of Defense, and back came in order, which I got a copy of. Henceforth, all organizations will be open without regard to race, creed, or color. Mm-hmm. Two years later, the war broke out, and I applied for a commission. Passed everything, got to the, to the oral interview, which is really a formality, mm-hmm. but one fellow there, a young fellow, reman- 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 remembered that I had opposed the Marine Corps, and everybody walked out on me. And I got word later on that my application had been turned mm-hmm. down. It was a good thing. I was disappointed, but also, it, since my enlistment was up, I could go back to college. Yeah. In addition... When I found some of the things happening, and I have friends who lost limbs, toes up in Korea because it was so cold up there, mm-hmm. the Lord did his work. I understand. He kept me to be here for your program today. I understand. <laughs> I, I understand. Sergeant, and obviously you, you care about this man deep, deeply. I can tell by when y'all walked in and you took your phone out and started videotaping and taking pictures. Um what has the service of these men meant for someone like you? It's, it's everything to me. When I when I found out what I consider to be uh, my history or, or true Marine Corps history, the rest of the Marine Corps history, uh, you get to see uh, people like me, people like me who have done extraordinary things. Uh, you know, because like, like our history, often it's filled with 
with others who've done, people who've done great things, but when you can know that we are part of that history as well, it, it just puts you in a different place. And again, that's what that's why I committed myself mm-hmm. to this organization because I thought it was just that important uh, to use my platform to help tell their story uh, because it's a, it's a game changer. Uh, even with the what we're talking about, the congressional gold medals that that he's wearing now, mm-hmm. the game changer for me is when families. Because a lot of my former Marines are, are not here today. Mm-hmm. But when families find out that their loved one was a part of such an iconic moment in American history, it's a game changer. Yeah. It's a game changer for me. Rose, five of our men, these men, gave their lives to save other men, mm-hmm. white and black. Mm-hmm. They received the Medal of Honor, but they gave their lives to save them. Yeah. Just recently, we lost the only black Marine who received the Medal of Honor in person, mm-hmm. Sergeant Major John Canley. Mm-hmm. He was buried in Arlington National Cemetery recently. But this, this, when I think of what I've done, and I'm older now, but I don't feel old, but when I think of young fellas like this who are now on the front lines taking bullets, being blown up, being mistreated, a mm-hmm. bullet in a bayoneted, because of the thick work that we did, I feel proud of them in one way and sad in another. Sure. Because look what we prepared the way for them. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't make me feel good to, to see it. I understand. I, my heart looks my goodness. But when you look at that Congressional Gold Medal, and maybe you all didn't think about it then, back in the 1940s, that you were, it was such a historic moment. We were doing our job. You were doing your job. You didn't know that, obviously, 60-some years later, you'd be talking to Rose Scott about it. But <laughs> that, medal says, that medal says more than what people probably think. Yeah, and the Marine Corps changed us. Fellas who were subservient and everything stood up, looked a person in the eye, spoke very loudly and what have you. These were different men that came out of the Marine Corps. I could go on and on and have this conversation for a whole another hour but thank you so much uh, Mr. Theodore R. Britton retired Montefort Point Marine 97 years young thank you retired Sergeant Major Johnny Higdon thank you both thank you thank you Rose thank you for having us now we have a gift for you sorry Sergeant Major we ain't getting none for you but (laughs) (laughs) we can share Thank you so much. That's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are LaShawn Hudson, Daniel Razel, Pat St. Clair. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And, of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as on our podcast. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE Politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE Politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.